Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-Earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. There are almost always dwarves on the road from the Misty Mountains to Erebor. Most of them are coming to, or returning to, their ancestral halls in Erdwin the Blue Mountains, which lie at the western reaches of Eriador. The Blue Mountains are as old as Middle-earth itself, and it was here that the dwarves of Eridwin delved the great mountain cities of Nogrod and Belagost in the First Age. The works of these halls were legendary, but their power was ended when their mansions were drowned in the breaking of Beleriand at the end of the First Age. Now, in the twilight of the Third Age, the Dwarves of Eridwin are loyal subjects of the King of Durin's folk. Some of these dwarves wandered the lands, searching for the lost ruins of their forefathers and the forgotten treasures they hold. Others dwell still in the Blue Mountains, while some have now returned to Erebor. But all remember the stories of Nogrod and Belagost and the pride of their people before the fall. Hello, Callum. Hello, Stuart. Hello. Thank you for having me. We've got our first guest. Welcome, Stuart of the Blue Mountains. Yes, magical place as it is. Yes. And what we're here to talk about today, we're here to talk about, well, you, obviously, Stuart, yes. and your character, who we'll come on to, and dwarves. Yes, the almighty dwarves. I know almost nothing about the Blue Mountains, and I'm ready to learn. Callum, what, what can you, as the lawmaster, kick us off and, and tell us about, about dwarves and how they fit into your game? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is why are they called the Blue Mountains? Why are they called the Blue Mountains? I don't know. If someone could please tell me. <laughs> I've been trying to find out. So uh, what can I tell you about the Blue Mountains? Or, or about dwarves and how they fit in? Or about dwarves as well. Well, I think that there's lots of really interesting lore history about how the dwarves were made by Aluli. Or Aluli. We're going to, we've did a disclaimer in the first episode that we're going to butcher so many pronunciations of things. So... Um, uh, made by one of the Valar and the, the beginnings of Middle-earth in secret. And he'd gone off and done his own project. And that wasn't really part of the plan, but everyone let them keep the dwarves. So the dwarves are, are very different from uh, the firstborn elves and, and men who came later. They're their own, their own kettle of fish. And the world is much the richer for having them in it. They're really evocative. So there's, there's lots of lore about who they are and the Longbeards are and Durin's folk and coming back. And uh, I think there's, there's a whole big lore dive that we could do. But maybe I can throw a question to Stuart, which is we've known each other for a while and you've always been interested in, in dwarfs in fantasy settings. So what, 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 what is it that makes you so interested in dwarfs, I guess? I've never been entirely sure, but dwarves of always taken a huge fascination for me in any fantasy setting. Tolkien being a big part of it, I would say. But other writings, like recently I read Aragon for the very first time, which has got a very interesting take on dwarves and a few other fantasy things. But maybe because I also have a big beard. <laughs> I just love their stature and their stubborn character and their humour and it definitely reflects a lot of maybe some of my character in some ways, but not so much. It's kind of what I'd strive to be. Maybe not as grumpy, I would imagine, but. You'd have to be a lot shorter to be a dog. That's right. (laughs) I think um, our listeners already know that we started playing AIM because of the pandemic or during the pandemic, partly because of the pandemic. I had never met Stuart before we started playing and um, we became friends through the game and you you do share certain dwarvish 
qualities in your, your character and the fact that you've played Runin, who we'll talk about in a minute, for so long, to the point where then I did meet you in person after about two years of playing. I was surprised how tall you were for no reason. <laughs> I had no reason to think that you were small other than the fact that you played Dwarf. Very true. I think it's... I shouldn't have been surprised, but... Playing for so long as well during lockdown and COVID, it's all been online, so you only ever really see shoulders and above. So you probably just associate that with the character and the voice, and... As, even if it is that had like a funny fisheye lens and a walk away, maybe I could just get smaller. <laughs> yeah. um, we talked about uh, Phaedric, who was my first character. That was our kind of introduction to a character creation. And it was quite fun to think back on what the motivation for him was. And then the process by which you used the rules to make him. I would love to know how Runin went from being just an idea in your head to the character that he is in our game. Is it safe to say that being a dwarf was pretty much a guarantee from when you started? Pretty much. I would say dwarf was up there with the utmost thing I'd want to do. As soon as I heard that we're going to be doing a Lord of the Rings themed game, I was like, dwarf has to be. I did look at other ones, and there's a few like Beornings were really interesting. Yeah. And there's a few others that I thought were intriguing, but I thought this is my first ever character for a D&D game. I can't be anything but a dwarf. So it was an easy pick. And according to like choice of character and who I wanted him to be, I kind of took some inspiration from Tolkien himself and the way the world is set. And I was always yeah. fascinated by like the Didenine and the wonders of the wild. And you don't really see that for dwarves in his world. Yeah, it's true. Fairly stereotypical in a sense. And I wanted to divert from that quite a bit. So what the sort of idea of being on the road, having adventure. Yeah. Being in the wild? Yeah, pretty much. Which made it more different and interesting for me. And we'll maybe pick up on it later, but whatever things made me decide how that fitted into his character with the background virtuals that heavily influenced that choice and that decision. So was that your starting point then, was Dwarf, and then maybe something slightly against the grain and being a character who was a bit more about the wild than perhaps Dwarves are portrayed in the books? Pretty much, because I'm definitely not a huge Tolkien lore nerd but i know quite a bit and i know there's lots of things that there's unknowns about dwarves like especially yeah. the, some of the people that went to the east and developed in that area on the land i can't remember what they're called now but i was fixing especially in the lower books there's only a few that we know of so i thought he's from the blue mountains and he travels back and forth constantly so that was my basis mostly what i like is that when we met as characters and Runin introduced himself as a dwarf of the Blue Mountains. Now, I knew that that was, and we were at Lake Town at this point, so the Blue Mountains were very far away. Immediately, it made Runin seem quite exotic because it was like, oh, well, he's from very far away and he's here. So presumably there's a story between where he came from and where he is now. And just that one thing, if you'd never spoken about the Blue Mountains ever again, he still would have felt like a really like fleshed out character just because he had this kind of quirk of yeah. where he was from and the fact that he was very far away from that place now. So I thought that was quite fun. It made him feel very uh, exotic. Yeah, it was not really my intention. I just, I thought that would be quite fun to do because his backstory, not to give, not to say too much, but he's from the Blue Mountains and he eventually moved to Erebor with lots of other dwarves when that was freed from the dragon smoke. Mm -hmm. And I think he only did that maybe like 10 or maybe even less than 10 years before we actually started the game. So he's quite fresh to that area. So even for him, this is all new and different. Well, I guess the we started in 2946. And Smaug was only killed in 2941, or five five years before. So, oh, yeah. so we 
probably like only three years he moved here. Yeah, so it's one of those things that's interesting that in the in the book it's you're a dwarf of the Lonely Mountain. What I what I was really liked when you made Rudin at the beginning was that you were immediately thinking, well, you know, he's come from the Blue Mountains, so that was a part of his personality, and maybe there's a story beat in there about, you know, there's all these dwarfs and some of them are you know, descendants of people that used to live in Erebor and have wandered. And, you know, this whole thing about Thorin and his people and they live in Dunlan for a while and they live in the Blue Mountains for a while and they're all over the place. And then there's other dwarfs that have come from the Iron Hills and they've always been there and other dwarfs that presumably have come from elsewhere. So Runin always felt like he was a mountain, he's a Blue Mountain dwarf before he was an Erebor dwarf, even though you used the Erebor dwarf rules to create him. Yes, I would definitely say that's how I always associated him as. Just, I don't know why. I just thought it fitted his character in my head. And then what about next step? Well, certainly the next step for me creating Thedric was then his class. Maybe that wasn't the next step for you. Once you picked Dwarf, what was the next bit in the process of creating him? I probably did a combination of class and background. I wanted to yeah. find something but Sync like synergized between both, and I toyed around a lot with um, Warden a bit, yeah, with a few, but then eventually I settled on Wonder, which I've grown to love and hate at the same time. <laughs> but it's been a very good learning experience, I would say. I'm really interested as to why you hate it. <laughs> Although I guess what we what we were talking about how we were. Uh, we were going to speak for Runin, and we thought that Wanderer was such a, a key part of the game. It's as opposed to Ranger in fifth edition of uh, D&D. Wanderer really is the star of the journey. So we're going to split that off and, and talk about that at the next episode and do a deep dive into the, the Wanderer class rules. So maybe we can, uh, that's a spoiler for next episode is... <laughs> Why, why is there a love-hate relationship there? <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this already. <laughs> what about background then? So so Wanderer, Ranger-type, wild uh, person, is your, your class. What about the background? What did you go for? Uh, for the background, I went for the Reluctant Wanderer, which I thought is the closest thing I could find for what um, made sense for Runin. And there was a few others that I saw that were interesting, like the sort of a lone wanderer could have worked. I always thought the reluctant one adventure fits quite nicely. It's meant for hobbits from description in the book. It's the sense of um, of Bilbo in the Hobbit, isn't it? The idea that he kind of almost almost gets dragged along to the adventure. Yeah, pretty much. And then but finds for... his feet once he's going. But for Runin, um, his reluctancy for adventure stems from a much darker kind of background and recent loss for his part, where for his backstory, he, in travelling from the Blue Mountains to Erebor, he travelled with his his family and some extended relatives, and on the way was waylaid by any remending factions of orcs or goblins on that northern pass, mm-hmm. and he lost his wife and his eldest son and daughter. And since then, he's been a bit of a, not quite a dour, sour dwarf, I would say, but he's felt like it was his responsibility to protect his family and he failed. And my characters of his kind of innermost feelings and reasons for everything, but he can't stay or he can't bear the sight of his family's face when he's there now, feeling that he's failed them. So he has to leave and his reason is he wants to hit the road and do trade. But that's all. That's really, uh, it's quite powerful because none of that came out in our early sessions at all. We really didn't speak about his loss or anything. Um, actually, all the characters were kind of guarded at first about who they were. But it's obviously informed a lot of your attitude to as adventures have gone on and the way the routes that we've gone and and the dangers that we've faced yeah i would definitely say so especially 
for a while, I think he was quite reluctant to travel north along that pass, which we eventually did. And he had an interesting encounter there as well. But he's got a lot of just dark, not dark secrets, but just hidden things that he slowly kind of revealed to some of the characters. Yeah. As he's opened up a bit. Because this also, when he first met Phaedric and a few other characters at the start in Lake Town, that was the most people he traveled with for a while. And for him, that was a big deal. And it's been good that over the well, three years we've been playing as, as characters in the game, it's taken this long for him to open up. It's been quite fun. Yeah, it's been quite a, quite a slow burn for him to, to open up. But it's interesting to think back for me, like as someone watching you play, that the idea that Runin had the experience loss as a character then had a big effect on a lot of his decisions, which we didn't know was what was driving the decisions, but Runin was very um, strongly opinionated on the way that we might go about doing certain things and the you know how cautious we needed to be on the road and was always a great guide. We always felt like, oh, Runin's the one who can guide us. He'll He'll keep us safe. So it's interesting yeah. that there's a sort of psychology point of view that yeah. you maybe, I don't know, did, did you feel like you had to keep us safe because of what had happened before? There was definitely a strong semblance for that, I think, and drive to protect these people that you maybe felt in some ways like these guys need protection, even though one character amongst our group definitely didn't need any protection <laughs> from anyone. <laughs> but he felt like he's the one that knew the wilds and knew the roads. Yeah. So he was like, I can help these people to just get from point A to B when necessary. Yeah. So then that's uh, class, culture, and background. Yes. What about your virtues? Thank you. I, I was just coming to it slowly. <laughs> I hadn't said anything for a while, so I was like, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, I need to say something. <laughs> Virtues. I don't think... Wait, I'm going to have to check the book again, but I don't think Rudin's got too many virtues, because dwarfs don't get a virtue at the start when you pick. They get a bunch of other extra things, like dark vision and uh, yeah. a few other things. Because I think it's mostly the races the of men who get virtues. Um, so I think eventually, I can't remember how far into the story, but I took a dwarven virtue called uh, Ravens of the Mountain. Oh, yeah. Which I uh, thought, one, would be very good utility and also just really good for roleplay. And it's such a, a big part of dwarf culture around surrounding Erebor. And uh, Runin wasn't the only one in our party to take that uh, virtue at the same time, which is quite fun. Yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah. People fell for a fellowship phase and independently were like, I want to get a raven. And I was like, do I say something? And then I decided just to say, fine, you both have a raven now. And then we had this 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 hilarious role play where like, I've got a raven. And then the other person's like, I've got a raven. <laughs> and then I and then I had to role play as two different ravens. You did a good job distinguishing between the two ravens who were similar enough that we characters who were not dwarves could not tell them apart, but for the dwarves, they had a personality. Yeah. What, what were their names again? Uh, Zrok was mine and... Croc was Croc. Durnair's. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one was older and one was younger and like much more eager to do anything and everything. I think they had I had a slightly higher voice and a slightly lower voice to differentiate, and that was pretty much it. And Croc, Zork. I I really had a lot of fun with the ravens for the small amount of time that I had them. I know. Yeah, I think we should maybe talk about that. Yeah. What happened to your raven? I suppose this is also a good leading point to other virtues, which Callum um, homebrewed for me after this encounter. And this one of the, the memories of Runin that still is burned deeply into my memory, where I can't remember what we're fighting now. I just remember There's a mysterious rider who we fought oh, yeah. um, out near a, a farm, sort of southeast of Erebor. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of us were in like a, a abandoned farmhouse or something, just hiding. And I thought, oh, this is totally safe. This will be fine. And I thought, Zrock, can you go and scout for us and just see who that is from a good distance? Thinking, he'd be fine. He's a bloody crow or raven. He can't get hit. Not forgetting that he also have so little hit points. Yeah. So then he flew away. And then the guy, in, I think he failed a stealth check, got noticed, and then shot quite easily. And then that was it. The end of Zrock. It's quite sad. It, it it was actually. It was our well today our only character death. He was a kind of a side character in a way, but he was obviously a big part of Rune's character. Callum, how did you feel as the lore master? Terrible. Kill, killing Terrible. one of your players' chosen cultural virtues. It was it was not very long after you'd got it, and you were obviously so excited to get it, and we were all really enjoying it. And it's one of those moments where you're running the game and you're like, this is a terrible thing to do. And I don't really want to do it, but this is what the this is what I think that NPC would do. You know, yeah. ravens are known to to often be in in league with with dwarves, and they're you know known to to so you know it would wouldn't be metagamey of the NPC to attack that. And it was a very lucky shot, you know. And then I think it was killed outright as well. Yeah, um, it's one of these difficult situations where. It is a you know quite a big thing for a player to take yeah. a virtue. You know, it's the same as in you know Dungeons and Dragons. You take a feat. Oh, your feat's gone. Yeah, yeah. You, you're died. using an entire level up to take a virtue. Exactly. And I think we talked about it afterwards because you know I guess in D and D, say you've got a companion or like a find a familiar. So. Uh, the other day we were we were playing uh, a very silly D and D game that one of our <laughs> friends was running, and I have a a, a warlock character who's got a, a familiar, and uh, I basically just did something really stupid and it died. But I was like, well, I don't really care. I'll just cast it again tomorrow. You know, um, no big deal. Whereas this is, you know, there was a relationship there, and I think we did discuss like you could maybe go and get another raven. Yeah, I think we discussed that we could get another one, or in like dire needs, one could arrive or be sent if we were close enough, maybe to Erebor. Mm. And for Runin's kind of viewpoint, he thought he'd again failed to protect the Raven Zrok. So he was like, "I don't, I can't bring myself to get have another friend like that anytime soon." So it was quite a big part for. Runin's kind of character creation from there as well. And he kept some raven feathers that are still on one of his axes or on his armor, I think. And just in terms of mechanically what that virtue does, so it has some nice discussion about what the um the the role is. And I think we role-played you going to get the, the raven. And we also yeah. role-played going back up to the area. So there's a there's a part on the the cliffs of Erebor where all the ravens are live on an old tower uh, and going up there and speaking to the ravens that was quite a how, how did you find that as a as a player I found that a lot more touching than I thought it would I thought getting the raven I was like oh great this is just a virtue and that would be great and it'd be quite fun role-playing to have this wee friend come along and just be there for our adventures and then when I lost him I was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I was like, oh, my bird. And I just, you did a really good job of describing and role-playing out his kind of memorial, because I remember we took him back up the cliffs and spoke to the, the elder raven. I can't remember what his name was. Rowak or something? I think it might have been. It's in the books as well. It's in I the books. The other character who had a raven was there as well to bear witness. And we kind of explained what happened to the other ravens, and it was a nice, like, small touching ceremony. And the raven is quite powerful, so it does note that usually the raven is eager to please you, but an unusual or less than reasonable request, less than reasonable, might put their faithfulness <laughs> to the test and require DC 15 charisma persuasion check do it the raven does not usually ask for anything in return but repeated requests over a short time might sooner or later 
lead them to feel entitled to compensation. Don't think that ever came up, but that's interesting. What would the raven want in compensation? Yeah. Um, Ravens can be sent on uh, tasks. They fly at 30 miles per hour, which is very fast um, in this this time period. And um, they can be asked to do a couple of things. So bring tidings, uh, carry messages, investigate, and carrying food. Which have been very useful on our previous long arduous adventure into Gundabad, possibly. Yeah. Trying to get yeah. extra food. Because we used a stat block for the Raven, just from normal, I think, D&D Raven think, thing. Yeah. And now I'm reflecting on it. I'm, I am wondering whether I should have just made it an abstract thing and not had it as a creature and just said, this is an ability that you use and it isn't possible to die. But I also think, you know, would that, I don't know, how do you, how do you both feel about that? Would that have worked or would that have been? <clears throat> it's interesting. Yeah. There are, as a, and sort of another example, some of the other virtues for different cultures give you an animal. So the woodman can get a hunting hound as one of their virtues. It in the book does have a stat block. So the fact that it does and the raven doesn't maybe suggests that rules intended, it wasn't meant to have a stat block. I, I think, and you may feel differently, Stuart, because it was, you know, your character's raisin. Your raisin? Your character's raven. That would be a very different <laughs> tone of game. Dwarves famously aren't friends of raisin, actually. <laughs> Strong enemies. Your raven... I think the fact that the world is dangerous, and we've broken Callum, the world is dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that was so funny. Just because I said raised. The world is dangerous, and the fact that you were using the raven to help you, but that there was that potential that things could go wrong, for me, is part of the fun of the game. I don't know if you felt quite the same, given that it was your ability that then got taken away i didn't feel like it was quite taken away i feel like it was just put on hold and also mortality is such a big thing for tolkien's kind of setting yes and a stofo is an animal and animals can die quite easily and i felt if it didn't use the raven to as it is intended like scouting and helping i wouldn't be using as it should be so it was I'm not always going to keep the raven sitting on my shoulder and never use it. I just keep it there as like a wee talking pet. It's like, no, <laughs> that cannot happen. Um, I found a section in the Lonely Mountain Region Guide, which is about the, the ravens. There's an area called Raven Hill, which is an outlying height at the extremity of the Great Southern Spot Spur and has the site of a large guard tower. And there's long-lived ravens that roost above the chambers. And at the time of the destruction of Erebor in The Hobbit, there's a bird called Kark who they, they communicate with and helps them and was capable of speech uh, when, when Smaug initially attacked. 171 years later, Kark's dead, but uh, his son leads the ravens, the ancient and balding Ruach, who is not in the, I don't think he's in the canon, but he's in the books. Uh, and he has a profile on page 20. I think you can actually, can you do an audience with him? Yes, we were talking about audience rules, so he's got some motivations and expectations. Oh, really? Yeah. I imagine quite different from audiences with Elrond or Bjorn. Yeah. Yes. Of highest importance is the safety of the mountain. I won't tell you what the expectations are because that might be. Um, Michael but they're quite interesting. Well, I said interesting so much when I was editing the episodes before and not say interesting as much. <laughs> I'll try not to say raisin again as well. How about that? Uh, so that's one of the virtues which was yeah. have you taken any other virtues as uh, Brunin's Jared? Um you I think after I lost Zorak you homebrewed two um, virtues which I eventually took back to back and one of them I think it was Azu Axe Rock was one of them which yes oh yeah um, twice per long rest I can call out the name of my fallen Zrok friend and I basically set a target of my vengeance 
and then I can use my bonus action to then dash towards that enemy, pretty much. Yeah, I gave you a bonus action dash feature because I think we were talking about it and it was that sort of rushing in. And I think after the raven died, you actually rushed in and attacked that enemy. That was your immediate thing that you did. And I, I, I think the theme... The idea in my head for that came from Gimli saying that dwarves are very good over short distances. <laughs> so I, I thought it fitted in well. Um, and it's been, I think, really useful, particularly because your move speed is only 25 feet. It's, yeah. it's going to balance that out a bit for you. And especially when it's only two per long rest, it means I have to, each time whenever you're doing an adventuring phase, I'm like so careful of when I choose to use it. Mm. And it's been quite fun to use on the right occasion. Yeah, how has it felt, Josh, when, when Stuart has used it? I really like that it's linked to what happened when you lost your raven because it feels quite meaningful when you know you call it out and then charge into combat. It immediately flashes back to the fact that you know we had a fight previously which went badly wrong for Rune's character and now that that's kind of informing his play in the future so i really like it I, I think it was a really good way of sort of home brewing in a meaningful effect for losing the raven yeah yeah I, I definitely felt like i owed you some some <laughs> recompense for just removing your <laughs> raven um what was the other um cultural virtue that we came up with and uh, everyone it's called raven's revenge which i thought was a good name and that one is similar to um, Hunter's Mark for um, Rangers D&D. And basically I can use as a bonus action once per long rest, I designate a foe and I do 1d6 um, extra damage once per turn to that creature. Which for aim, I think is probably quite powerful, but it's good that it's limited. But it's been very useful for certain encounters, I think. Yeah, which... Has there been a particular enemy that you remember using it on and it's been really useful? I remember the troll, which then put me unconscious once in a fight. I mm. think it did that, and I got to use it in one round, and then it immediately knocked me unconscious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's me. that was some good encounters, though. At least you got to use it. Yep. Um, so those are the ones that you've used. Um, we may as well go through the rest of them. Um and there's maybe something to mention here, actually, is that we, um, when we first started out, we, uh, Runin was made using the uh, Dwarves of the Lonely Mountain cultural virtue, which Stuart ran us through at the beginning. Um, that's the one in the player's That's in the player's handbook. But it's worth noting that there are other sources. So in the Breeland region guide, and I, I have to admit, I, I think I had maybe read this and then completely forgotten about it and when we first started out i just looked at the player handbook and the lower master's guide uh there is rules for uh, dwarves of the blue mountains so i was just sharing that with stuart because i don't think he'd ever seen it before so there's yeah. some interesting things in there uh, in page 43 the breeland region guide and also in the lonely mountain region guide at the end there are rules for um uh dwarfs of the gray mountains which are the ones to the north of Markwood, which are largely abandoned, and dwarves of the Iron Hills, which um, exist in the somewhere else, but they're a bit more expanded. Handbook, but it's maybe been expanded on. Yeah, they've been expanded on, so they give some extra cultural virtues, and maybe we can go through the cultural virtue. Did you consider any other cultural virtues, Joe? Well, I've I've just taken in our last game. After a fellowship phase, I took uh, the last one of the dwarves virtues called Stiff Neck of the Dwarves, which is going to be quite fun. And it's it, really interesting. It's most I waited to take this one because it relies heavily on your um, shadow points and where they lie in relation to this feature, at least, because your wisdom score is basically, yeah, your wisdom score and your shadow points, they have to be overlapping to a certain degree. And because I'm a wanderer, my wisdom score is quite high. So I've waited until my shadow points are high enough, and then it will give me plus one to all my ability checks, apart from charisma-based, which should be a boon for future games. I think it's really interesting that the idea that, I mean, so much of the game is about the idea of the shadow and things being corrupted. And like, 
so much of the the Hobbit and particularly Lord of the Rings is the idea of the Shire being this kind of idyllic perfect place and people protecting it from being corrupted but that dwarves kind of tread a line where they're close enough to the shadow in this case that they can actually get a benefit but you as a player know that if you get too many shadow points from from doing things that are not good in the game or being exposed to you know corrupt things you could be tipped over into a bout of madness potentially which is one of them i really like that feature in this game and i like that i'm going to be riding that line now with Funen, mm. of wanting to yeah that's fun in that level otherwise if i go mad i will then lose all my points eventually and i have to start again and then that virtue will be not working for a while but in in terms of tolkien's work thorin's probably reasonable example of that that he kind of strayed close to characteristics that Tolkien probably would not have thought of as good so in terms of greed and his obsession and near the end of The Hobbit he strays quite far that way before kind of being pulled back do you think that's the spirit the game's trying to capture there? Probably that's a good point actually yeah yeah I was wondering I thinking there it was giving me two things in my head to compare this to one is the video games trope where you have like a morality mechanic yeah and you get benefits one side or the other so i'm thinking virtue and paragon I'm trying to remember what games there is there's, there's quite a few video games where you have like a mechanic if you do good things then you get a bonus if you do bad things you get a bonus and the other thing i'm thinking about is in the alien game uh, in the alien rpg there's the stress mechanic which the more stress you have the more dice you can roll but the worse things can go it's not quite the same but that idea of you know, terrible things can happen to your character, which can provide strength if you're resilient enough, but it might all go wrong. Yeah. It's a bit of gambling. It's a a good decision. Yeah, I'm really excited to see your crazy ability checks. So um, we've done Raven of the Mountain, Stiff-Necker Dwarfs. What about Old Hatred? Baruch Kazad, Kazad Menu. Bless you. (laughs) I've always thought that this one is basically gives me was it as uh, blah, blah, blah. you're fighting goblins of a kind using a melee weapon. Whenever you roll damage, I could re-roll weapons damage dice and use Ivor total. It obviously story-wise and RP-wise, it would make sense for Runin. Just haven't taken it yet. Hmm. It, it's pretty powerful, I guess. It's it's quite a lot like Great Weapon Master in D, but it's for any weapon and i guess the larger your damage dice is the the more powerful it comes you just came by a great spear so i guess that if you're using that more in the future then it may actually become something that's yeah. really useful uh durin's way that was the beginning of the war of dwarfs and the orcs which is long and deadly and fought for the most part in deep places beneath the earth You've been taught to defend yourself while fighting under the surface of the earth. You know how to exploit corners, darkness, and other natural obstacles to your advantage. When fighting underground, you gain plus one to your armor class and dexterity saving throws. Yeah. That one be really, in, especially one of the other one-shot games that we did with lots of doors. That would have been quite useful when we're all underground. Yes, that actually, I don't know. Did anybody take that? I can't remember. I Josh almost- wasn't in that game. You were no, away or I, something. Uh, I missed yeah. out on that game. We, and still talk of it very fondly. <laughs> it was very silly in, 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 in a talking sort of way. It was called Deep Delvers. And the idea was it was a group of, of dwarfs were tasked by, I can't remember who it was now, one of Foreign's company to go down into the deepest parts of Erebor and explore because there'd been some thoughts that the parts had been sealed off. And uh, down there you in, encountered lots of things and eventually... Uh, sort of nameless terror of, a, of an age long past and had to flee for your lives. Um, and Stuart, what happened to your character? Um, <laughs> basically, I tried to stand my ground a bit and then realised my folly or that mistake. Tried to run, but then I'd found new heavy armour, which made me really slow. And there was a large, not a large, but like a, a bit of a ravine gap that I had to jump. And Classic. in in character, I was like, nah, I can't make that with his armor. So I quickly threw it off. 
<laughs> and was confident in my abilities because I had high strength to just leap the gap. And then just, I think I rolled like a three and then just fell to my death. It was such a like frantic and messy one shot in some ways in terms of like all these very strange dwarf characters that people would come up with. And it was uh, interesting for me running a one shot where it was all one culture and the yeah. uh, chaos that ensued because of that. It was very fun. I think I've got lots of ideas for other one shots yeah. to do, but this would have been a really good virtue for that. But I think for Arunan, I probably will never take it because since he's a wanderer of the wild, even as a mm. dwarf, he maybe spends some time underground, but he's used to being on the road and being outside. Uh, and then we've got Broken Spells. Were you ever tempted by these ones? Yeah. Each time when I have a choice or have a chance to pick a virtue, I'm often looking at them and I deliberate which one I would like. Because there's three different ones. There's Spells of Opening and Shutting, which has to do about uh, magically locking or magically sealing locks and doors. And then there's Spells of Prohibition and Exclusion, and that to do with runes and um, protect, like, concealment, from what I can see. And then Spells of Secrecy, which is the one that's often, just because that's, especially for the Hobbit, when they are hiding all the treasure from mm. in the cave troll horde, so I was like, that just sounds very dwarf to me. Mm. And uh, it allows you to hide objects from anyone quite well. And they have to make a DC 30 intelligence investigation check to find it. And if you're a dwarf, it's a DC 15 check, which sounds quite fun. So that's one I might take later in, down the road. Yeah, we have roped a bit where you had hidden some treasure somewhere on a on a one of your known lands. Oh, yeah. There was, a, there was a section where you found that. And I guess it's worth touching on the magic here because there is quite a lot of magic in The Hobbit. Much more in The Hobbit than there is in Lord of the Rings. I guess because it's an earlier work. And it's more of a children's book. But there's there's quite a lot of mention of magic and dwarves having magic. So yeah. it, it feels very much to fit in place. Yeah. And especially in this age where dwarven magic has been talked about in the past and that is now kind of mostly forgotten. And it's nice that it still is around in some of these virtues. And I've always been kind of waiting to find the right opportunity that would make sense for Runin to learn it because he doesn't mm. know it just now. And I maybe should have taken one when I was when we were spending time in Erebor. But I think well, I've got ideas. So if you do want to learn it, then I, I can think of a couple of NPCs that you know that um could teach you. So just say the word. I'd be in for that. Melon. A <laughs> uh, couple of other cultural virtues to touch on, which we won't go into too much depth, but in the Breland Legion Guide for the Blue Mountain Dwarfs, you can take Deep Songs, which gives you some advantage when you take Heal Corruption during a fellowship phase. And that's to do with having um, songs that you sing when you're we're traveling. You can also take Harp of the Halls. And in addition, in the Lonely Mountain Region Guide, which I'm flicking open noisily here. I like the sound effect. It was good. Thanks. You can have a cultural virtue for a dwarf of the Iron Hill, sworn allegiance. You do not give your trust to those easily, easily, but when it happens, a bond that is formed is so strong that you treat your friends as kinsmen, which is thematic for like Dane coming to the aid and later yeah. on in the War of the Ring, there's the stuff about um, the dwarfs of Erebor and the, and the Dale uh, people of Dale fighting side by side. And basically it gives you inspiration. The first time you complete a long rest during an adventuring phase, you gain inspiration as long as your companions are not paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, miserable, stunned, or unconscious. And uh, if at least half your company are dwarfs, you get inspiration in each manner after each rest. So that's a nice little bonus. Yes. And the Grey Mountains have won Dark for Dark Business, uh, which gives you advantage in perception checks at night, essentially, if you're to, to reflect the fact that the Grey Mountain Dwarfs are often in little holes and hiding from the enemy and uh, in dark places. 
That's all the cultural virtues. Um, it's worth actually mentioning, and I don't think we've mentioned this before when we were doing Phaedric, that there are virtues that you can take which aren't cultural. So there's open virtues. Yeah, applicable which, to, to any of the yeah. any of the cultures. They're much more... They're more generic on the page, but I think leave a lot of room for interpretation for players to, to, to apply them. Do you have them open in front of you? Yeah, so um, one which we can touch on in a second is cultural heirloom. So there's different heirlooms that each culture gets, and you can take one of those. And there's also some that increase your damage when you're attacking from range or in close combat, and another that you allow you to get expertise. Uh, and finally, one which give you advantage on... You get to re-roll hit dice. Uh, when you're rolling them to regain hit points but the cultural heirlooms are, are worth talking about for dwarfs as well yeah now do you do you have any as running i don't think i do if it's of help Phaedric in the end took a cultural heirloom shortly before he retired yes we should talk about that um they're I like them as cultural virtues because i think it's it's cool the idea that you have a, a special object of your people it feels like something that should come later on in the character's development i've not i don't know if it would be thematic for you to start with one maybe it would depending on the situation but what theodric got was um special bjorning armor and uh, he was a dex based character he was not good in combat at all nope had terrible ac because his dex had a negative modifier but as he uh, grew older and approached retirement um Bjorn gifted him this armor, which gave him an AC bump, which was great. And it gave him a bonus on charisma checks while he was wearing the armor. The idea being that the armor was actually this, this special object, which almost increased his, his presence and allowed him to uh, impress or intimidate other people. I thought it was really cool. It felt like he'd received this, this special boon of his people. Uh, and I like how grounded in the cultures they all are. Uh, and my newer character, um, who replaced Theodric, who we will eventually come on to talk about, uh, started at a higher level and started with a cultural heirloom of, of their people. And the character was very much built around that because I, I enjoyed getting their room so much. Yeah, that's been a huge part of the story, that cultural heirloom. They're, they're all quite thematic. I really enjoy them. The Bjornings also get a giant slaying spear and a splitting axe. And the dwarves uh, get yeah, quite... what do the dwarves get? Get quite a lot, actually, from the look of it. Never actually looked at these properly. Oh, we're giving Rune and I some ideas. It's going to be agony of choice next time you're able to take something. There's an axe of... an what well, has a nose bar. It's a great axe. So that was the battle that you see in one of the scenes in the Hobbit films where they go and they're trying to fight to take, take back Moria Khazad-dûm, I believe. And it's a plus one weapon. And additionally, the first time you attack an orc or a goblin in combat, you have advantage on that attack roll. Ooh, that would synergize well with one of Rune's other abilities. Yeah, that'd be really useful. Although I do like one of the weapons I've got just now, which has been my primary weapon for a long time now, is even if I miss with this axe, I still do one damage. <laughs> yes. Um, so killed all... some people, you know. <laughs> I love when you've killed people in combat with... So but... I miss one hit point. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so much fun to use. That's great fun. And then the second one is Dwarf Rot Hauberg. Yeah. It's a corset of mail. So you get extra AC and you're immune to the bonus damage of critical hits. So that's really powerful. It's some of the best armor in the game. And then finally, there's a Helm of Awe, and they've got a picture of it. These, a terrifying uh, helm, which gives you advantage and charisma intimidation ability checks against orcs and goblins. And you can also use an ability to try and frighten some enemies. Here's a question powerful. for you, uh, Loremaster. These virtues are really rooted in Tolkien's work and the cultures. As a player, you're allowed to just take them at certain level ups. Would you allow a player to just take one of these heirlooms and just say, this is my level up, I'm taking this? Or 
would that need to be a conversation with you as a lore master to figure out narratively how that would work? Yeah, usually. It, well, how have you found it? You've both uh, taken various things. How, how has it worked? I, I think I know how I would like it to have worked, but that's it. <laughs> well, with Theodric, he, I, I think I said to you that I wanted better armor. Um, it was a real problem how bad his AC was. <laughs> I guess AC was 11 at one point. <laughs> and it, it came up narratively that Bjorn, as part of a, a, a bigger role-play moment where Theodric was actually given a title, also received this armor. So it happened as a role-play moment, which fulfilled a level-up requirement i really liked that because it felt like it was a kind of natural progression it wasn't just me kind of window shopping some random item so i I liked the way that was handled yeah i would say that makes sense because i feel like it kind of almost needs to be not earned but you need it needs to make sense and part of the story especially some of these items are probably quite unique and aren't just everywhere like you'll be in mountain hall which is a village that we went to near the start of the game and you how do they have a, like a powerful elf bow or yeah. something? <laughs> so. Well, you got the raven when we were having a fellowship phase near Erebor, didn't you? Yeah. And it's just next door, which is why I thought I'm here. What can I do in this area? And just pop, pop over there, get a raven, become a new friend. Yeah. I think it encourages that. Encu- encourages you to, as the player play towards a situation where you could get the level up that you want rather than just you know randomly developing your character just out of the book yeah it does sometimes feel like that in D where you're like leveled up and you suddenly and you're like oh i just remembered i can you know how does that actually work when you get your sp-? and depending on the situation you know do you undergo some sort of ceremony to level up uh whereas in aim i think it's been people done a really good job of making their level ups true to the character yeah i would say and usually role playing some aspect of how that's come to be which is maybe easier because they're less dramatic changes generally speaking yeah that's true and i think yeah the cultural virtues you know i'm a big believer in if it's in the rules then you should I, i'm not going to stand in the way if, if someone says you know this is what i want to do if level up it's not really for me to say that's not what they can do but rather to say okay you want that helm how can i make that work in a way for the story that fits and makes that player feel that that would fit with what their character does and all the other characters or the other players uh, also feel that it's, it's still they're still immersed from it so yeah. um i hope that if anybody ever comes to me with a level up request and i'm very accommodating for that <laughs> And I often, as I, you know, I quite, I, I, I want you guys to be really, well, maybe not powerful is the right word, but to, to get benefits from what you've done. So I do try and often think, you know, well, you know, what's, what's something that would help them? So, and come up with homebrew. So um, Brendan and I were talking the other day because he also had a Wanderer class and Josh, we were talking about this in an earlier episode. We said that actually there wasn't that much overlap. <laughs> and Brendan pointed out that actually we'd be homebrew some of the rules and we'd slightly changed uh, Malbus' uh, rules and given him some of the Wanderer features. Uh, and maybe that was why there wasn't so much overlap. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I forgot we did that. So there's been quite a lot of adjusting and changing the rules slightly um, to make them more fitting with the character. I have a final question for you, Stuart. Yeah. You mentioned at the beginning, right at the beginning of us talking, that Runin was pretty much the first D&D character you had done the, the mechanics of turning from an idea into an actual character. So it was your first time doing the character creation process. Yeah. Now, now that we're level you know, eight, nine, couple of years down the line, is there anything that you would have done differently? You know, Now as a more experienced player, would you have approached character creation differently or would you have thought about something differently? Um, I, I'd probably say don't feel that you have to stick to something from the start. Like, feel free to adjust it if you want to. And also, one thing I've definitely learned is write your backstory down so you don't forget it. 
couple of times <laughs> and lost it or just not written it down and later tried to remember over like week weekends and weeks oh yeah i've got a great idea for this or i've got this fleshed out weeks later i'm like what did i think again so that's quite important especially for my memory i think which <laughs> yeah, i've learned yeah. since and Please. Yeah. There was a moment recently where you wanted to use your, you were going to tell someone your secret dwarvish name in Kuzdul, which is a whole thing that they mention in the books is that, you know, we've got these names which are in, um, you know, sort of translated dwarvish names, which they use with outsiders, but they'll all have names in the secret tongue of Kuzdul, which they don't teach to outsiders. And then you, you're like, I'm sure I've written this down somewhere and made it. Yep. And I couldn't I... remember where it was. Nope. And it was in my first book of notes right at the back, which was not where we normally write these things. I put it normally at the front, but I must have for some reason put it there instead. It's funny how much writing these things down somehow makes it real, because obviously it's it's all it's all make-believe. And if you hadn't already had a name, you would have been very comfortable just improvising a name. That would have been fine. But as soon as you wrote it down somewhere and someone says, what's your name? You think, well, he has a name. I, I can't just make one up. Like I have written it down on paper somewhere. It's a, it's a real thing. Yep. it's all just make believe really yeah yeah that's one of the things that are that does make this run, running this game a bit more difficult is that off like i've got all these great books and resources but sometimes it does mean that when people ask a question i'm like well better look this up because i have to be consistent to the to the story and you're you know stuart is our probably our best note taker in the group i think there's a competition between you and james yeah probably <clears throat> but you're the person that uh, we come back to if we've got questions about what happened Sometimes to the detriment. There was a there was a thing recently where there was this artifact that you're wanting to show to Elrond, <laughs> and then it is, go back to the notes and it's like, no, we we gave that to someone else. Like we, we gave that away. Yeah. There was a brief moment where we, we all kind of thought to ourselves, I can't remember. We probably we've probably still got it. It would be good if we still had it. And we looked at the notes. No, we we gave that away. Yeah. It's one of the things that was in the back of my mind. I was like, I'm sure we don't have it. And I was like, yeah. Go <laughs> yeah. <back to> <laughs> just spoil it for everyone else. Yeah. Um, maybe to, to finish off, we've talked about a couple of Runin moments. What what are your favorite Runin moments from across the how many episodes now? 66? I think sessions? 68 now. I think Ooh, 68. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. So I've got a, f- a few. One of them was definitely losing Zrock for Raven. That is still one of the biggest ones for women. But uh, another one is quite early on when I killed that warg by cutting off its tail. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and for a long time, that has became an ornament. And it's just such a stupid way to kill a warg. Yeah, Karhu had done so much damage, and then you did like quite a small hit and yeah. just finished it off. Yeah. It was somewhat like the um, moment at Helm's Deep where the Gimli sitting on the orc with his axe embedded in its head. Yeah. Legglass comes over and shoots it. Still twitching. And another one for recent memory is um, Runin's new f- uh, friendship with an elf that we met in, in Ladris. Yes. Narfadir. And that for Runin, he's met a few elves now. And only one other one he's felt like he can be friends with. But this one immediately he's took a kinship with as a a fellow craftsman and friendly person for an elf towards a dwarf really kind of set him, on, set him, set him at ease, really. That has yeah. been quite a big part recently for him. And especially he was another character that was used in a one-shot or campaign. Yes. Yeah, he was a smith of Aregion or Aragon, or I'm not, not sure how you pronounce it. I say Aregion. Had had a, a close kinship with dwarfs, so... It's really fun to to find those stories in the lore and then bring them out in moments like that to to make things differently and that sort of theme of kinship across uh, divides. Yeah, yeah. Runin's been he's been you know I guess you, you've had your favourite moments and maybe I can indulge and say maybe not so much moments but just as a running the game he's been such a like dependable character in the in the campaign who's who's there for everything and the relationship and really like the linchpin of the party in some ways yeah you know he's always been there he's 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 stuck by everybody he's a very reliable person and his quest has never been 
at the forefront, but he's always been there to support people. And there was a whole part where we touched on stuff with your your family and backstory, and that came out when we were in the Grey Mountain Narrows, and um, I think you accidentally stumbled into that place before, which was maybe a bit dramatic. That was quite a surprise to me as well. I was like, oh, shit, yeah, this is the thing that I created in my backstory. Yeah, you you mentioned that, like, so long ago, and I was like, when we were in that area, I was like, I'm going to put this in. Yeah. Um, Which was, uh, yeah, not not a comfortable moment for Rumen. Rumen? Rumen. How about you, Josh, as 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 the other player character? I, well, two, they're not sort of moments, they're sort of uh, general feelings about Runin. One, I always think of Runin as the superhero of the party. <laughs> and we'll touch on this with the, the Wanderer episode because Runin's the Wanderer. His abilities in the wild have saved us so many times. <laughs> so many times we have rolled better journey rolls, we've avoided danger, we've managed to sneak away, or we or we've found the tracks that we needed because Runin is good in the wild. It feels like the game is set in the wild, and of the party, Runin is the character who's good in the wild. So yeah. he's the person we need. So I was thinking of him as a bit of a superhero, and we just kind of follow him around. He's the Batman and we're just all playing Robin, basically. Oh no, we have a Batman in the party. It's not really. We do actually have a Batman in the party, Malbeth, who's played by Brendan, who just comes and goes in the night as a bit of a superhero. But Runin is uh, is a superhero in his own way. The other is I like that Runin, as a good dwarf should, smokes a pipe yeah. and um, as multiple characters have had really good roleplay moments, kind of downtime either by the fire or at a feast smoking a pipe and the game actually has a a, a smoke ring mechanic like a contest which a few characters have done with runin and that's always been really nice this reminded me of a great moment where you 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 quite early on got a a very fancy pipe that had been carved by woodman yes or they'd found from long ago and it was quite a like a low-key moment to get it but then later on i think you figured out that the engraving on it was of the old forest road which is like a really historic dwarven thing and that was and it had some um item it had enchanted properties yeah and you've been practicing trying to get the most difficult um dragon is it the dragon i think it's the most difficult thing to blow and uh (laughs) <laughs> you did it one time you were just sitting smoking on your own and nobody was away oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just did it that. yeah that was hilarious yeah because each other time I, I would attempt it i would save that for the last i think you get three attempts in the mechanics and each time i just failed miserably and just like coughed myself out of the competition and then that one time i did it fine i was like god damn it feels like kind of sums ruining up though doesn't it it's like quiet brilliance yeah. Is is kind of Runin's calling card, <laughs> and maybe one other final um, memory, which is a good and bad memory, where um, your new character Josh had a <laughs> was going through a bad time, and in a recent encounter, in, a very uh, bad time, and put it short, um, you ran off thinking that you're going to help save the party when we were surrounded by goblins and orcs. And we were we tried to stop you and failed, but, and Runin was quite like a dust distance enough away where he could not reach you with his twenty five feet speed. And he's like, uh, "I can't reach him. I'm just going to shoot him in the leg." And I didn't know that Halmer was so low on hit points, and then just killed him. <laughs> just killed him. <laughs> I was like, ah! "What? I, I think you were out of healing. He almost died." Yeah. I very, very nearly died as a result of this. I had uh, suffered about a madness because of the number of shadow points I'd accumulated, and I had thought I was helping the party when in reality I was, I'd was i gone mad and I was going to run into danger. It would have made things much worse. Runin uh, inadvertently <laughs> killed me, yep. although inadvertently knocked me unconscious, but Helmet did survive, but it yeah. was quite a, a dramatic moment. Oh, yes. man. That's a brilliant moment to leave off. So thanks very much, Stuart, for coming on and sharing your thoughts and and telling us all about Runin. Um, he's such yeah. a wonderful character. And that's that's this episode. Thanks. And Stuart will be joining us for our next episode to talk about The Wanderer.
No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions, and questions to the fellowship phase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return on the next episode of The Fellowship Phase.